Well, thank you very much, Paul, and uh, thank you for your very warm welcome. Well, it has to be said, doesn't it, that there are certain things in the Bible from which even Bible-loving Christians would prefer to run a mile, which reminds me of the story of the pastor who was once asked to go and speak to the Year 9 boys at his local school about sex, but because he and his wife never spoke about these things, he put the appointment in his diary in a way that his wife who always read his diary, uh, wouldn't start asking questions about. So he wrote in his diary, speaking to year nine boys about sailing. And a few days afterwards, the head of the year bumped into his wife and said what a fantastically helpful talk he'd given. It was so insightful and knowledgeable. And the pastor's wife looked surprised and said, well, I don't know why, he's only done it twice. Once he was sick, the second time his hat blew off. <laughs> There are certain things, aren't there, we would rather not talk about. But each of the three passages we're going to be studying together today confronts us with a topic that will make the modern Bible reader even more uncomfortable than the topic of sex. And that is the subject of gender distinctions in church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, which we just read, instructs women to be silent in church. In 1 Corinthians 11:2 to 16, which we'll tackle this afternoon, Paul tells women what kind of head covering they must wear to church in order to demonstrate their submission to men. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, which we'll be looking at this evening, Paul states that it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church and they must ask their husbands at home to explain what is said. So as we turn to these passages, I do hope that someone has locked the doors. I think there are two obvious reasons why we might find ourselves embarrassed about these passages. The first is the common assumption that they are simply not clear. The difficulties in the text, both real and perceived, combined with the vast amount of ink that has been spilt over them and the multitude of interpretations that are put forward can lead us to the feeling that these passages are simply beyond the ability of the ordinary Bible reader to understand. Now on the one hand, some parts of the Bible are harder than others, aren't they? There are genuine challenges in all three passages today, as we'll see. We're going to have to work hard Perhaps, perhaps harder than usual through the course of the day, the day. As Sherlock Holmes might have said, this is a three-pipe passage, Watson. Definitely a three-pipe passage. We're going to have to give it some time and apply ourselves. On the other hand, they're not as difficult as we might think. And there are plenty of passages in the Bible which are equally difficult, but have attracted much less controversy. And if, as I assume we do most of us do, that all of the Bible is the word of God and not just the bits we agree with or find easy, then we mustn't allow the need to think hard about certain passages to be an excuse to kick them into the too hard basket. So in the time we have this morning, my hope is to show you that while this passage is dense, it is not as difficult as people make out. So even if you still want to disagree with Paul by the end, my aim is to show you that he at least is clear and straightforward 
as he is in any other instruction in the letter. But I said that there were two reasons for our embarrassment about these passages. If the first is that we're not sure if they're clear, the second is that we're not sure if they are good. The culture in which we find ourselves sees any distinction between men and women as the remnants of a patriarchal society whose aim was always the suppression of women by men. And so as we turn to these texts in that culture, they feel outdated, don't they? They feel out of place. A bit like an old cardigan that has just completely gone out of fashion and you need to consign it to the recycling or a grating chord in a piece of music. Worse than that is the accusation that it is these very texts and the insistence on women submitting to men and to their husbands that justifies all kinds of abuse and domestic violence. And therefore, we urgently need to see not only that Paul is clear, but that what he says is good. And so my goal in these talks then is very simple. It is to move us from that reluctant obedience to joyful delight. You see, it's not enough to get to the point where we begrudgingly acknowledge the meaning of the passage because we believe it's the word of God and we cannot see it saying anything else. I want us to get beyond that point today and to see just how good this teaching is for us so that at the end of our time together, these passages, each of them, will lead us to say, hooray for Jesus. Well, as Paul said, you've got an outline. I strongly encourage you to turn uh, this up. You'll see at the top of it I've put uh, the NIV uh, 1984 version, which is the one I'm going to be following, but it's fine if you've got the Bible open in that passage as well. And uh, the outline uh, that I've given you there uh, takes us through the passage in three headings, uh, although we're going to look at each verse at a time. And the three headings are simply what Paul says, Uh, why Paul says it and why it matters. So let's begin then uh, with what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. Look with me, if you would, at verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Of course, the thing that everybody notices in that sentence is the prohibition, the quietness and submission part. But before we get to that, I want to point out three assumptions in verse 11 that help set up what Paul is going to say to women in a broader context. The first thing to notice is what Paul actually wants women positively to do. Can you see that in verse 11? What does he want them to do? He wants them to learn. Now that is just worth mentioning because there is no suggestion anywhere in the New Testament that learning and reading and the study of God's word is in any way the preserve of men more than it is for women. As if Paul expects men to be studying God's word, women should just stick to the recipe books. No, the New Testament expects women to be people who learn, to be growing in their knowledge of the things of God, standing alongside men in this regard. And you see this all through the Bible, don't you? Think in Luke 10, for example, of Mary, whom Jesus praised for sitting at his feet, listening to what he said. 
Women are to learn. The second assumption worth noticing in verse 11 is that Paul sees the church as a place of learning. The context in 1 Timothy 2 makes it clear that the setting Paul has in mind in these verses is not the home, but the local church. This is the reason why woman and man is the correct translation throughout the passage, not wife and husband, which is hinted at in the footnotes. Although, of course, family and church are deeply connected in Paul's mind. And Paul is assuming that one of the primary things that will take place in the church gathering is learning. The local church is where Christians will engage their brains, will think, work, grapple with God's word. And it's interesting that this is a much more common sort of understanding in the New Testament than, for example, worship. The church gathering is where people come to learn. I think that has all sorts of implications for us, doesn't it? If uh, learning is going to happen in church, we'll want to make sure we come prepared to learn. We'll want to have read the passage at some point in the week ahead that is going to be taught on. We'll want to make sure we get a good night's sleep on Saturday night, come ready to church to engage brains. Uh, We might want to catch up on talks if we miss a Sunday online because Church is a place where learning should happen. But there's a third assumption I want to draw your attention to in verse 11. And that is that there is a connection between learning and submission. See, there's probably a number of teachers here, aren't there? What does every teacher want when they go into their class of 36-year-olds or 36-formers or whatever it is? What does every teacher want from their students? Well, I think they want what Paul wants in verse 11. They want quietness and full submission. That is because the the business of teaching is closely connected to authority. Because what is teaching? It is communicating truth to people. And if learning is to happen, we must submit to that truth. And this applies to anything, doesn't it? To bake a cake. You have to submit to the recipe. To drive a car, you have to submit to the rules of the, world, of the road. Or imagine if I went out there and being a, a relative stranger to Edinburgh, I just asked a stranger, uh, can you direct me from here to the castle? And they said, well, it's in that direction. Is it in that direction? And uh, I listened to their, it's in that direction. They said, it's over there. And I understood them and I listened to their directions and then I walked off in that direction. I would not be submitting to the truth. I would not be learning at that point. And because a disciple of Jesus is fundamentally a learner, somebody who, like Mary, sits under Jesus' feet listening, so that our worldview and our thought patterns and our grasp of reality can be constantly shaped and molded by him, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're a learner, and then therefore you submit to teaching. So those are the three assumptions in verse 11 which set the context for what Paul is saying about women in particular. The local church is a place where authority actually happens, where authority is exercised over its members through teaching, which requires submission for learning to take place, both for men and women. Well, with that in mind, have a look now at verse 12. And I think that makes verse 12 already a little bit easier. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Not surprisingly, many attempts have been made to limit the scope of what Paul is saying here. For example, some people argue that Paul is just teaching his own personal opinion. So he says, I, I do not permit, but if you want to, that's up to you. It's just a suggestion. Others suggest that he was addressing some kind of particular problem in the church in Ephesus. There is some irregular behavior going on among these particular women in this particular church. And therefore it doesn't apply to other churches and it certainly needn't apply to us here and now. But we'll see in a moment that his appeal to creation in verses 13 and 14 makes all of those kinds of suggestions impossible. He's going to take us right back to the beginning, which is going to show us that what Paul says to this church here, God says to all churches for all time. Well, look again at verse 12 then, and notice that Paul is saying something about teaching and something about authority. And the key to the verse is is understanding how those two things are connected. And the question is this. Is Paul talking about two separate things or one thing? Is he saying, I do not permit a woman to teach and I do not permit a woman to have authority? Or is he saying something that holds the two together, linked by that word or? Well, we've already seen in verse 11 that the way authority is exercised in church is through teaching and the context is the context of the local church. Authority and teaching are connected just as learning and submission are connected. So you can't teach without authority. You can't learn without submission. And that is why in chapter 3, Paul will go on to say that elders must be able to teach. As the elder teaches God's word faithfully, authority and leadership is being exercised in church, and learning takes place as the whole church submits to the word of God. So when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, I think it's clear that Paul is not saying two things, but he's saying two closely related things. Teaching and authority are not identical, but they're very closely related. So if you just have a look at the screen behind me, this is how we might paraphrase uh, verse 12. I permit no woman to teach in the mixed congregation of the church family or to have authority over a man, which she would have if she taught in the church. Can you see how those two things are so closely connected? Let me read that again. I permit no woman to teach in the mixed congregation of the church family, or to have authority over a man which she would have if she taught in church. Well, let's pause there and think about three implications of what we've seen so far. First of all, seeing that Paul is teaching, is tying teaching and authority together, and that the local church gathering is the context makes it very clear, I think, that Paul is not saying women cannot have authority in any context. See, we might read this and find ourselves wondering, well, if it's unbiblical to have a male elder or preacher, 
Surely it is also unbiblical to have a female, sorry, a female elder. Surely it is also unbiblical to have a female prime minister, a female head of state, and a female first minister, all of which, of course, uh, we now have. Or perhaps it's a problem for a man to submit to his female boss at work. Or we might read this and put this the other way around and say, well, well pragmatically, if it's okay for a woman to be a prime minister and she can do a perfectly good job of leading the country, then why not a pastor or a preacher? But the context is key, isn't it? Paul is speaking about the church, and indirectly he's speaking about the home, as you go on to see in chapter 3. So Paul is not saying a woman can never exercise authority in general, or that men cannot submit to women in general, but... When your female boss, or Theresa May, or Nicola Sturgeon, or Her Majesty the Queen, go home, walk through their front door, then according to the Apostle Paul, they must submit to the husband as the head of the family. Or if they were to walk into church, the Queen, Nicola Sturgeon, Theresa May, imagine them walking into this church, great powerful women. In church, they are to submit to the eldership. That, I think, is what Paul is saying. So that's the first implication. Secondly, women and teaching. What we've seen so far also makes it clear that Paul is not excluding women from teaching in every context. He is talking about the exercise of authority through teaching the whole church when men and women are present together, which obviously leaves plenty of teaching for women to do. Women teaching women, women teaching children and young people, especially their own children. Older women training younger women, as in Titus 2, 4, and so on. And neither can Paul be excluding women from teaching men in every context. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, common sense tells us. Paul cannot mean us to think that if you find yourself having a conversation with a woman over coffee and she happens to say something which constitutes teaching, the man must block his ears and run out screaming before they're in danger of learning something. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But secondly, the testimony of the New Testament tells us this. Think of Priscilla in Acts 18, for example, whose name, interestingly, is often mentioned first before her husband, but with her husband, Aquila, instructs Apollos so that he understands the gospel more adequately. She becomes a, a trainer of somebody who then becomes a preacher, as you see in Acts 18. And when we turn to 1 Corinthians 14 this evening, and I do encourage you to come back uh, both for, uh, for the afternoon and the evening session so we can see this theme developing across these three chapters. When we turn to 1 Corinthians 14 this evening, we'll see very clearly that there is a particular word ministry that both men and women are to exercise together and with each other in all sorts of contexts, including the mixed congregation of the church. Now, different churches will work out the details differently from these principles. What should be clear from what we've seen so far is that it would be wrong to open every form of teaching to women but it would also be wrong to close every form of teaching to women. And that's the basis of the policy that the elders here at Charlotte Chapel have worked out. I read a policy document uh, 
based on the, what the elders here had worked out, and I counted 11 different opportunities for women to exercise word ministry in a variety of settings within Charlotte Chapel, and I counted five teaching settings which the elders thought were inappropriate. At Morelands, the church I served, we, serve, we have sliced the cake in a similar way to you here. For example, uh, we reject the idea that you can sometimes come across of delegated authority. I don't know if you've heard this one, that the elders can kind of delegate to a woman on a particular occasion the authority for teaching. Well, I just don't see that justification in the New Testament at all. It doesn't seem to be in keeping with what Paul's saying. It seems like a kind of a, a way around it. Another example of how we've done things is like you here, we've not excluded women from co-leading with men in mixed small group Bible studies because we think the context of the small group and the type of teaching that a Bible study is allows that with certain caveats. However, it's interesting that generally speaking, women in our church are reluctant to grasp the upfront teaching and leading roles that they could exercise. Why is this the case? Why do women in our church want to do less formal teaching in mixed settings than they could do? Well, I think that's a very interesting question. And that brings us to our third implication at the bottom of the page, delighting in difference. So I want us to think for a moment about why it is possible for women in a church like this, in a church like ours, to not merely accept Paul's teaching here and elsewhere, not merely to begrudgingly go along with it, but to actually delight in it. How is that possible when every voice in the world and in society tells us it is oppressive and unjust? Well, I think the first reason is that in a healthy local church where the word of God is in the driving seat and where serious, nourishing word ministry is given its proper place, People who sit under that word ministry, both men and women, will find that they actually have more word ministry to do than they have time to do it. This is because of the brilliant New Testament principle that the word of God multiplies in the lives of God's people. So you see this, for example, in Jesus' opening call to discipleship. The very first thing Jesus says in Mark uh, chapter 1, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's the multiplying of God's word. If you become a disciple, then I'm going to make you somebody who disciples other people. There's the multiplication. You see it in the parable of the sower, where Jesus promises that those who hear the word as good soil will themselves produce a crop, 60, 30, or even 100 times what was sown. You see it in Ephesians 4 where the teaching of the full-time set-apart pastor teachers is meant to flow into the church like blood and oxygen and nutrients sort of flowing through the veins and arteries of a healthy body as every member of the church does that ministry of encouragement and building. And you also see it in Colossians 3.16 where Paul encourages the Colossians to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you then teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. There's the multiplication of word ministry happening. Now, I've begun to pick up some idea of how this is happening here. 
But the way I see this working out at Morelands, and I think in any healthy church, is in a way that sometimes amazes me because it's much deeper than you could plan or program yourself. What I see is a constantly deepening and self-replicating culture of one-to-one Bible studies, of little prayer triplets happening, of book groups, and an almost infinite number of conversations and friendships which seek to push people on in Christian maturity with every opportunity, formal and informal, planned and spontaneous, so that I know that throughout the week, the word is multiplying in the church as men and women have a plate full of word ministry. So many opportunities to share the word and encourage each other so that very few people are looking over the fence being short, feeling short-changed. When the Bible is really feeding people in church, when the word of God is filling all the pipes, there is plenty for us all to do and we've got to crack on and do it. In fact, one of the things that can happen tragically when people are fixated on getting women into the pulpit and the, the sort of whole ordination debate, having oversight of churches, is an actual real women's ministry becomes stifled. If you set preaching and eldership as the goal of women's ministry, I think it devalues the ministry most women are happy to spend their lives exercising as they teach and train build, encourage, disciple in all kinds of other contexts. The second reason I find that women are not merely accepting but delighting in Paul's teaching in a healthy local church is that in a church where the word of God is in the driving seat, we understand what it means to do things together as different people. We understand complementarian ministry. And this brings us to the heart of what this passage and today is about. See, people get this, this idea wrong at this point, this idea of gender difference, sometimes called complementarianism. People get it wrong at this point. Because they cannot escape what the Bible teaches, evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, can develop an attitude of strained obedience uh, what you might call an anything but mentality. Doing everything that you can get away with without actually crossing the line. A little bit like the teenagers who have started dating and they are asking, how far can we go in physical intimacy before we're actually sinning? Or like the preacher I heard at a conference recently who said he was a firm believer in complementarianism and then proudly told us that if he could get enough gifted women, he'd have women preaching in every street corner, every Christian union meeting, every conference, every camp, every midweek Bible study, leading every meeting, anything but preaching Sunday morning sermons. But I think that seriously misunderstands the Bible's teaching on the complementary nature of men and women. God has made us different and he's given us complementary contributions to make. And it's when we see that and how we need each other, and we need each other to be different, that we can move from reluctant obedience to joyful delight. When women can delight in being women, men delight in being men, and will be seeking to exercise the ministries that God has given us in the grain of Scripture as we build God's church together. 
Well, if you turn over the page with me then, we've spent a fair bit of time on what Paul says, and now we need to see why he says it. And that brings us to verse 13. Have a look then at verse 13 with me. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Notice that verse 13 begins with the word for. So Paul is obviously explaining the reason for what has gone before. Our problem, however, is that it's quite hard to see how this gives a reason for what he said in 11 to 12. So look at verse 13 and notice uh, with me that that it is actually a very clear sentence, isn't it? There are no tricky words or concepts in the sentence at all. It is just a very plain statement. In fact, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And verse 14, which continues the explanation, is equally clear. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived. These are really the most straightforward sentences in the passage, perhaps in the whole letter, uh, which is why there's an absence of footnotes in, in the NIV. They're very uncontroversial. But our difficulty is understanding how these two statements provide an explanation for verses 11 and 12. Well, what do we do? How do we work it out? Well, one option is to try and read between the lines and to guess what Paul is saying. For example, one persistent theory is that what Paul is saying here is that women by nature are more gullible than men. See, that that is why... Eve was deceived. She was was more open to deception because by nature, that tells you something about women. And because of that nature of women being more open to deception, they cannot be trusted with teaching. I don't know if you've ever heard that explanation before. It's a a very popular explanation in even uh, the, the good commentaries. But I think that's just guesswork, isn't it? We're going to need to work a little bit harder than that. I think, in fact, what Paul is doing here is he's not wanting us to guess what's in his mind, but he is putting something into our minds. Paul is alluding to two passages of the Old Testament here. And as he alludes to them, as he often does in in his allusions to the Old Testament, he wants us to bring to mind the whole passage So if Paul were writing today, he might have a little hyperlink that you click on on a computer and it it brings up the whole passage. That's what he does with his allusions. And so in verse 13, he wants us to recall the whole of Genesis chapter 2. And in verse 14, he wants us to recall the whole of Genesis 3. Well, that tells us already, doesn't it, that this has got nothing to do with first century culture or stereotypes about men and women, he is taking us back to fundamental principles. He wants us to understand this instruction about women in church from how God made us and what we have become. So let's begin then by thinking about verse 13 and Genesis 2. We haven't got time to turn the passage up this morning. But I'm going to assume that that many of us know it well. And he is talking about the time that God created the first man and the first woman. So that's what he, he wants us to have in mind. That creation account of men and women. 
And he summarizes that account by saying, remember, Adam was formed first and then Eve. So what is the significance of that? What is the significance of Adam being formed first? Well, again, we could guess, couldn't we? Is it that first means best? You know, sort of primary school, sports day, I was first. No, no. Or is it a kind of firstborn child privilege? You know, the firstborn gets the, 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 the first fruits. You know, he's first in line, first come, first served, all that kind of thing. Well, again, I think that's just guesswork. I think what we have to do is, is look at Genesis 2 and, and, and think about it. And I think the significance of Adam being created first and Eve second in the context of Genesis 2 is simply that God created humanity with an order. You see, you can see this by contrasting the creation of humanity with the creation of the animals. When God made the fish to fill the sea and the birds to fill the air and the animals to fill the land, he did it all at once. I take it that he, although I can't multitask, you know, I can't make a cup of tea and have a conversation at the same time, I, I, I literally can't. But I take it that God can multitask, and I take it that he didn't just make one fish and then another fish and then another fish until the sea was full. And therefore, God was perfectly capable of making Adam and Eve at the same time. God was perfectly capable of making Eve first. But he chose to make Adam and then Eve. And that gives an order to creation, an order that is built into humanity from then on. And in the narrative of Genesis 2, you can see how this works out. Adam came first, and he's given responsibility. For example, he is the one who is blamed in the end for Eve's deception. He has to take responsibility. You can see that responsibility in the way he names the animals. You can see the responsibility in the way that Eve is then made as a helper for him. And so Adam being created first, Eve second, it has got nothing to do with value, and it's got nothing to do with status, and it's got nothing to do with power, but it's about an order that God has built into humanity. The man and woman are created equally in the image of God, as chapter 1 makes clear, completely equal in status and value and dignity, But God made men and women different, with different and complementary roles in which men lead, women submit to their leadership. And that order of creation is to be expressed in the family and mirrored in the church. Well, that's verse 13, but that's only one half of the explanation. The other half, and the more significant half, comes in verse 14. Have a look at it with me. Verse 14, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Well, if verse 13 goes back to Genesis 2, in verse 14, he wants us to have Genesis 3 in mind. And while his focus in verse 13 was on how God ordered the creation... His focus now in verse 14 is how the creation has become disordered and he particularly wants us to think about 
Eve's role in it. Now, I, I want to say that it's at this point that we do have to work a little bit hard. Because I think that grasping Paul's point here is really the key to the whole passage. So what did happen in Genesis 3? And in particular, what was the deception? Well, again, if we had time to look at Genesis 3, we would see that very well-known story of Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God. As they, they took and ate the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat, and the resulting judgment of death, his banishment of them out of Eden, the curse that then spreads death and chaos and disorder through the world right up to the present day. But if you know the story, think back to how it began. It began with the serpent speaking to Eve, didn't it? And this is the moment of deception that Paul is talking about. This is how this disorder began. What was the nature of that deception? Well, let me read Genesis 3 verse 4. The serpent comes to Eve and says, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me read that again and just, just try and spot the particular deception. The serpent comes to the woman and says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The deception of the serpent was to try and persuade Eve that God did not have their best interests in his mind and therefore the best interests of humanity are served when humanity does their own thing. That's the deception. God is not really here for your good, but if you do your own thing, you will achieve the good for humanity. That was the deception. The deception came from the serpent to the woman. Now, of course, in the end, both the man and the woman were deceived and both became sinners. And both are held equally culpable for leading the human race down that part of rebellion. In fact, in the New Testament, it is Adam who is blamed, if you like, uh, more than anybody else. But it's, it's not about establishing blame. It's about establishing what happens. And Paul's point is simply this that the way the rebellion happened involved a reversal of the order of creation that we saw in Genesis 2 and verse 13. And a key part of that reversal was the woman being deceived. Remember, the order established in Genesis 2 involved various relationships of headship and submission. <coughs> And submission simply means ordering your life under another. That's literally what the word means. Ordering your life under another. So in the beginning, God was the head. And under him was man. And then man was the head of the marriage. And under him was the woman. And together, they were to rule the animal world. That's the order of creation. In terms of authority and submission. But the rebellion then throws the whole thing into reverse. And you see a complete reversal of that order. 
The one who should submit in each case throws off submission in favor of self-rule. So the animal, the serpent, rules the woman. The woman over the man, and then the man over God. Man in the garden in Genesis 3 should have had authority over his wife. He should have taught her to obey God. Instead, he listened to his wife, and the authority went in the wrong direction. And the result, they both became sinners. And that's what Paul wants us to remember in Genesis 3. That's the deception that began the disorder that engulfed the human race. The man was led by the woman, and together they were led into sin by the serpent. Well, having done that work in Genesis 2 and 3, let's take a step back now and see how verses 13 and 14 function in the passage to explain why Paul does not want women to speak in church. And I think you'll see that it turns out that Paul is actually saying something simple and uncontroversial within the pages of the Bible. I'm not saying it's not controversial in the world, but in the pages of the Bible, I think it's uncontroversial. He is saying that in the order of creation, God has given men and women different roles. Man is to exercise headship. A woman is to exercise submission. And while that headship and submission is not necessarily to apply to every male-female relationship in the same way, it is to be demonstrated in marriage and in the church. And so this is the reason Paul does not want to allow women to speak in the mixed congregation of the church gathering. Because for women to exercise that headship is to overthrow the order of creation. It is to fall again for the serpent's deception. To believe the lie that what God wants for you is not for your good and some other way will provide our good. That's why. That's why he says it. Well, we've seen what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. We've seen why he says it in verses 13 and 14. But we now come to the climax of the passage, and we need to see in verse 15 why it matters. Once we've understood what Paul is saying and why he says it, it actually becomes quite clear why this matters so much, especially if we read this passage in its context of the pastoral epistles 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. We need to listen carefully to Paul's hopes and fears for the church in Ephesus in these letters. And when we do that, I think we can discern three precious things are at stake if we ignore what Paul is saying. And it might be surprising to see that these precious realities are none other than God, the gospel, and salvation. First of all, Paul's use of Genesis 2 and 3 make it clear that delighting in the differences between men and women is what God wants us to do. We are to work with rather than against the grain of creation. And redemption, being Christian, does not excuse us or, or take us out of that. 
Rather, being Christian helps us to fulfill and to, to properly work within the grain of creation. That men and women are equal but different with distinctive asymmetrical roles in family and church life is therefore not a matter of cultural or personal preference or church background or pragmatics. It boils down to this. Will you take God at his word? Will you trust God? The very thing Adam and Eve failed to do. It is about being happy in your own skin, being happy with the way God made you, rather than falling again for the deception of the serpent. And therefore, Paul's fear for this little church is that they will lose sight of the glory of God. We've been created as divine image bearers, as men and women. That's how we glorify God in the world. And as we build the church through the word, as men and women, in a complementary partnership, we reveal the image of God to a watching world. And therefore, it should be no surprise that this is the area Satan will choose to continue to attack God's people. It should not be a surprise, should it? If, if the glory of God is at stake, that Satan will use the same deception he used at the beginning in order to overthrow the order of creation and to diminish the glory of God. It should be no surprise that this, gender distinctions in church, is a live and current battle. Because it's as we fail to listen to God, fail to trust God and take him at his word, that I think the glory of God is diminished. Because we can no longer image God to a watching world. And that's what Satan would want. Secondly, Paul is concerned that the Christian church displays this order to the watching world because this behavior promotes the gospel. Um, if you come back this afternoon, we'll see this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11. And, and can I again encourage you, even if you weren't planning on coming back, come back this afternoon and listen to this theme continuing in 1 Corinthians 11. But notice in the paragraph above ours that Paul has begun his address to women with an appeal to modesty, which involves adorning themselves, verse 10, with the good deeds which are appropriate for women who profess to worship God rather than expensive clothes and jewels and so on. I notice that word propriety, which means a kind of humble, appropriate behavior, which is pleasing to God in both verse 10 and verse 15. And if you've got 1 Timothy open, just look across at 5.14. 5.14. And notice there that he appeals to younger widows to marry and have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. This is the appropriate behavior that adorns the gospel. Or just listen to it from Titus 2. Titus 2.9, he's talking to slaves. Slaves be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. It's an astonishing thing to say, isn't it? You, you might think that Paul would think the gospel was the most attractive thing in the world, but he says that slaves in the way they behave, women in the way they behave, men in the way they behave, we can make the gospel attractive. And so Paul is concerned that Christian men and Christian women 
do not feel that the gospel has liberated them from the order of creation to live another way. On the contrary, the gospel has liberated us from a distorted misuse of the order of creation so that men and women, as we relate as God created us to be, we adorn, we promote the gospel. But the third thing that it's at stake, and this is the surprise of the passage, isn't it, is nothing less than their salvation. And so look with me at verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. It's easy to begin with what it cannot mean. It clearly cannot mean that all women who are Christian will be physically kept safe in childbirth. That obviously cannot be true. Or that women will earn their salvation by having children. Or that people will be saved by the birth of the child, by the woman, Mary. All of those interpretations have been suggested. The key to seeing what this passage, this verse means is to not begin with the word childbearing, which is the word that jumps out at us, but to begin with the word saved. Because this is the word about which Paul has already made himself abundantly clear in the letter. To grasp what Paul is saying here, we need to think about the how and the when of salvation. So, how are you saved, according to the Apostle Paul? Could it be that he is bringing in here a kind of a salvation by works. Women will be saved by childbearing. Well, of course not. No one could be more clear or passionate about justification by faith than the Apostle Paul. The only way to be saved, he has already told us in this very chapter, is through one mediator between God and man, the Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 and 6. How are you saved? You are saved when you put your trust in the blood of Christ, when you repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness that he brought with his death on the cross. There is no way Paul can be advocating some kind of good work or contribution to salvation in the form of childbearing. But we also need to think about when you are saved, according to the Apostle Paul. Well, we're saved when Jesus died on the cross. We're saved when we believe the gospel. We're saved as we continue to believe. All those are true at the same time in the New Testament. But very often in the New Testament, we are going to be saved in the end. That's why Christians are called upon to persevere, to keep going until the end. That's why in the book of Revelation, Christians are nicknamed those who overcome because they keep going to the end. So that in the end, when the evidence of our faith is seen, that's when we'll be saved. So just look at three examples of this on the screen. In 4.16, he says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or look at it in Philippians 2 verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or Romans 5 verse 9. We have now been justified by this blood. 
So how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Well, in the light of those examples, look back with me at verse 15. But this time, miss out the controversial word. Verse 15 simply says this. Women will be saved if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. If we take it like that, it turns out Paul is not saying anything controversial at all. Nothing that he doesn't say many times elsewhere. He's simply saying that women will be saved by the gospel if they continue believing the gospel to the end. If they continue in 100% dependence on Jesus their saviour. If they continue the lifelong process of sanctification and other person-centered love for others which Christ has modelled. But what about those two words that cause so many difficulties? Well, given the order we saw in Genesis 2, Paul is talking about childbearing as a way of describing the distinctive thing that women normally do that men do not do. Of course, Paul realizes that some women will never enjoy the privilege of childbearing. But in the light of Genesis 2, he's using this as a, as a shorthand for the normal life of most women, of most times, in contrast to men. It's a kind of a shorthand for saying, a woman living the woman's life. And in the context of 1 Timothy, it is a very pointed shorthand as well. If you just glance over at chapter 4, if you've got it open, you'll see there that some people in this church were teaching people not to respect this normal life, not to marry, not to engage in sex, not to enjoy food, this, this kind of normal life. And he calls this in 4 verse 1, the doctrine of demons. We've already seen in 5.14 how he's combating this sort of super spiritual false teaching by saying, no, that the young widows should marry, have children, manage their homes. In other words, just maintain going on being normal women, not think that you can be some kind of super spiritual woman by being someone other than who you are. Let me put it this way. Pregnancy and birth... And childbearing is a messy business. I've had four children. They're no longer messy, but I remember it well. So uh, what do babies do in their first year? I think they do a, a, a handful of things. They cry. They sleep. They eat. They fill their nappies. They occasionally vomit for, for variety. That was our kind of experience of, of having babies. But of course, when Paul says childbearing, he doesn't just mean those early years. He's talking about the whole span of a mother's uh, motherhood. From the pain of bringing them into the world to the pain of letting them go out into the world as adults. And there is nothing that has the power to bring you down to earth than the nitty gritty and the pain of childbearing. And it just so happens that nothing so brilliantly develops and reveals those things Paul mentions in verse 15 that are in keeping with salvation. 
dependence on God. You ask a mother raising children what she's learning about depending on God. Other person-centered love. Holiness. That is the life of motherhood. And Paul is saying that some women in this church are saying no to that. This is too messy for us. We're above this. We're Christians. We're spiritual. We're not going to get our hands dirty with that kind of thing. We're going to preach and we're going to wear nice clothes. Verses 9 and 10. But Paul is on about salvation. Salvation is what he's been on about since the beginning of the chapter. He is concerned for the salvation of the women who were thinking this way. Who were trying to throw off God's order. Were trying to find a different way of living and justifying it by the equality they'd received in Christ. And his message to them, as it is to Timothy in chapter 4 as it is to us now, is that in the kindness of God, you don't have to be somebody else to be saved. Jesus saves you as you are. And this great salvation therefore brings us all we need. It doesn't demand that we become someone different to the person God has made us, but it frees us to be the people God has made us to be. This salvation comes now as it did then through the blood of the mediator, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus who loved women enough to die for them. It's actually a wonderful thing Paul is saying, isn't it? As we've heard him and grappled with what he's saying, that women as women will not miss out on the great, free, gracious salvation. And so men and women Rejoice in the person God has made you to be. Rejoice if you're a woman. Rejoice if you're a man. And receive that perfect salvation Jesus has achieved by becoming a man for us. As I said, it should lead us to say, hooray for Jesus. Well, why don't we pray and do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is both clear and good. We thank you that your word takes us to Jesus and his great kindness to us. And that great kindness helps us to see through all the confusion and the muddle of our world and our sinful hearts. We pray that you'd help us to repent of the sin of Eve, of doubting your goodness. And we pray that we might receive gladly this great salvation that Jesus has brought us and live it out fully and gloriously as the people you've created us to be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.